I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we have a really super important and relevant topic, and um, we're so thankful for our guests tonight who um, are here um, to kind of guide us through that. So I'm really excited. I know that a lot of you, um, we saw that the, a lot of people are tuning in tonight, and so we're so glad that people are, you know, here to try and grow and try and learn, and I think it's going to be um, a really good conversation. I also want to mention, too, I know that APA has a um, a town, a virtual town hall going on on a, of a similar nature than what we have tonight. We didn't realize this when we scheduled it, but I know that theirs is recorded. So I'm sure that that is equally um, awesome. I'm glad you guys are hanging out with us tonight, but um, maybe we'll try and get a link out for that recording um, afterwards if we're able to, because I think that there's a lot, probably a lot of value in um, checking that out as well. But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Hello, everybody. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, if you are watching live um, on YouTube, right along your video, if you sign into your account, you can comment and um, participate just by uh, entering into the chat box. Because our focus tonight um, will be real intentional listening, um, we may get to um, the, your questions later on in the broadcast so as not to interrupt. But Please feel free to post them there in the chat because we will come back and, um, um, and extend the conversation through discussion at the end. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our wonderful guests. Fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, we are honored to have two of our friends, our NASP uh, school psych colleagues and friends with us this evening and uh, grateful that they're going to share with us. So I'd like to introduce first Dr. Sherry Proctor. She is an associate professor of psych school psychology at Queens College, City University of New York. Dr. Proctor is co-editor of the Handbook of Multicultural School Psychology and Interdisciplinary Perspective, second edition. Her research focuses on social justice issues such as increasing racial diversity in school psychology and school psychologists' experiences serving black students exposed to police violence against black people. She is the current chair of the NASP Social Justice Committee and co-chair of the NASP Minority Scholarship. We also have with us Charles Barrett. Dr. Charles Barrett, PhD, NCSP, is a lead school psychologist with Loudoun County Public Schools and adjunct lecturer at Northern Virginia Community College, the Graduate School of Education at Howard University, and the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University. Coupled with his leadership roles within the National Association of School Psychologists, Charles frequently speaks to a variety of professional and lay audiences about promoting positive outcomes for children. An award-winning educator for his commitment to students, families, schools, and communities, he holds degrees in education and, uh, sorry, English and psychology from St. John's University and human development and school psychology from Lehigh University. Charles and his family reside in Northern Virginia. And uh, just as we get started, Rebecca is going to, I'm going to hand it back to Rebecca and she's going to uh, read our pledge. Yeah, so um, the three of us, as, as we believe the only school psychology exclusive podcast have been really thinking about, um, uh, about what we'd like to, um, how we'd like to share our um, hopes and priorities, not only during this podcast, but um, for, for the work that needs to be done in our field. So School Psych Podcast hopes to prioritize social justice by looking at all topics in our field through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. To Black educators, psychologists, families, students, friends and family, and our School Psych Podcast audience, we pledge to work for racial justice after the protests end. We do, we pledge to do our own work by reading research books, articles endorsed by the black community about the history of race relations and the current state of structural systemic racism in the, racism in the United States and in education and psychology more specifically. We promise to continue checking our privilege as individuals and resist the temptation to become defensive. We promise to choose not to prioritize comfort over racial equity by identifying racist comments, practices, or policies and naming them when we see them in our personal and professional lives. We promise to create space for black psychologists by listening more and talking less and to amplify their voices and work. 
We pledge to work to not burden black school psychologists, school psychology trainers, or other black leaders with our emotions or, or desires to make change in moving toward social justice. Thank you so much, Dr. Proctor and Dr. Barrett for being here. And with that, we'd love to hand it over to you for any reflections or, or thoughts that you have um, as we begin this conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will just say thanks to Rachel, Rebecca, and Eric for the invitation to join you all in conversation this evening. I think it's an incredibly important um, time for us to engage in authentic conversations in our field. So I'm very happy to be here, and, and I hope that um, these conversations continue and, and they don't end tonight. Yeah, I would echo that. Thank you for the opportunity, the invitation. Uh, my parents taught me a long time ago that people don't have to ask you to do things. So whenever I'm asked to contribute to a discussion, especially mm -hmm. something as meaningful as this, it's it's always an honor to to be a part. I consider you all friends, especially my good friend, Sherry Proctor. <laughs> and I'll just make one request. Um, I think you all know me by now. I hope you said Dr. Barry for the last time this <laughs> evening. So from here on out, it's Charles. So looking forward to this discussion with all of you. And I, I do appreciate, um, what you just read, Rebecca, um, and there was, I think it was maybe the third or fourth point um, that really talked about the action that is necessary beyond the initial statements mm -hmm. or beyond the initial um, response or reaction to what's going on. I think it's the, the everyday intentionality that really is the real work of mm -hmm. disrupting and interrupting existing, existing systems to really lead to meaningful change. So I appreciate that so much. And I'm seeing we have a lot of uh, people kind of tuning in. And so again, thank you for everybody um, there. I, I know my, my inclination is to, to put every comment up because um, <laughs> we've got so much, um, I think, positive energy right now. But I also know that we, we want to kind of hone in on listening too. So my apologies if I don't get everybody's uh, words up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have both been very active with NASP, with Social Justice Committee and the Multicultural Affairs Committee. Can you share a little bit about that work, um, the committees and the work that you are each doing? Yeah. So, um, I can share a bit about the Social Justice Committee and, and Charles uh, is the chair of the MAC as well as the Social Justice Committee member. So I'll let him kind of take the lead on that discussion. Um, so the Social Justice Committee really has been fully functioning for the past two years. Um, Charles was the initial chair of the Social Justice Committee and I took over as chair uh, last year and Leandra Paris is the co-chair of that committee. So we're charged with helping the field understand what exactly is social justice. I think, um, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about social justice, um, but often what we've learned in our work is that school psychologists may not be 100% sure um, what social justice is. And Charles and I can kind of talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but our charge is to really help the field understand what social justice is. What does it mean to our practice as school psychologists? How do we enact social justice? So it's just not words that we say, like we're for social justice, but it's actually actions that we engage in. So in order to do that over the last year, maybe some of you all have seen articles in the communique from the Social Justice Committee um, we chose to focus on low income and economic marginalization. So students who live in low income and economic marginalization. It's a um, larger conceptualization of poverty because it actually takes into account the conditions when you live in poverty that go along with not just um, you know, not funds in terms of uh, income or living expenses, but also just those other social kind of um, experiences that come along with economic marginalization. Um, so we've done uh, a series of eight articles this academic year in the communique focused on diverse groups. So it could be consulting or working with other committees on 
projects or initiatives. Um, one of our major projects, I'll just plug it now because it's great, is the NASP Exposure Project, which uh, mm -hmm. really started out of the African-American subcommittee back in spring of 2018. Uh, we're probably well over 7,000 students, um, high school students and undergraduates exposed to the field um, for two reasons, really to certainly address critical shortages in the field, but also to also intentionally recruit more diverse representation into our field that is primarily white and primarily female. So we are certainly working hard on a number of, of initiatives that, again, are relevant to students and families. You know, the 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 student student body population of you know pre K through twelve is becoming less homogeneous and more heterogeneous, um, and certainly that presents unique um, opportunities for us as a field to grow in our professional practice. So there are a lot of social justice principles um, that are embedded in our work um, as a MAC committee or as a, a MAC unit. Uh, so certainly looking forward to just sharing more of that as we go along and certainly uh, we can get back to just kind of what social justice is and mm -hmm. continue. Yeah. So I can actually share the definition that we came up with as a field. Um, mm -hmm. In 2017, the NAS Board of Directors actually adopted this definition. So this definition was actually uh, developed from a group of school psychologists, um, practitioners, academics, folks who are uh, leaders in doing social justice work in the field. So the definition is that social justice is both a process and a goal that requires action. And that action part is really important to this definition. School psychologists work to ensure the protection of the educational rights, opportunities, and well-being of all children, especially those whose voices have been muted, identities obscured, or needs ignored. Social justice requires promoting non-discriminatory practices and the empowerment of families and communities. School psychologists enact social justice through culturally responsive professional practice and advocacy to create schools, communities, and systems that ensure equity and fairness for all children and youth. And I, and I will add that um, one of our colleagues in the field, David Schreiberg, has done an incredible amount of work around um, helping the field to understand what is social justice. And Dave has uh, used qualitative methods to interview um, cultural diversity experts in the field, school psychology students, and school psychologists. And throughout all of his studies, the things that have consistently come up in terms of social justice and how we as school psychologists view social justice are fairness, equity, justice and culturally responsive practices. So it seems that we consistently as a field understand that those are the elements um, that would lead to socially just practice in terms of our, our practice as school psychologists. So um, Charles, you always speak about social justice in a way that I, I, I kind of like to hear people talk about in terms of it not being like a manual or like a cookbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, little food analogy. So I talk about um, just different, I guess, metaphors about it. So I think that um, some of us on here, there's a bunch of people in the chat, but we all have our, our um, orientation as far as how we were trained as school psychologists. So some may be behavioral, some may be cognitive behavioral, some may be psychodynamic or you know humanistic in their approach in psychology. And that's really how I see social justice. It's another theoretical framework that you apply to everything that you do in the field. So whether it's um, intervention work or prevention work or assessment, um, how you um, engage families through parent interviews and how you engage teachers for researchers is how you even structure your research questions and how you engage participants. Um, so this idea that it's something that we could kind of add to our work um, after it's done to make it more legitimate. Um, so, so, for example, talking about assessment, and I'll just use this less language um, loaded assessment with a child from maybe an, an English learner background. Um, but that could be helpful, but still not really justice if you haven't really embedded a certain respectful thought process throughout all that you're doing for the child. So I see it really being baked into whatever we're preparing for children, not something that can kind of sprinkle on um, at the top to make us feel better that 
we did the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's it, it's different from, although it includes um, culturally responsive practice, um, it's different because there really has to be this fundamental systemic awareness mm-hmm. of how we even got to inequities, how do we prevent inequities. Um, I was sharing with Sherry maybe a week or so ago, just a thought that I'm, I'm still maybe even thinking through, but I think about socially just practices as being um, the conditions that lead to equitable outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking to reduce disproportionality and reduce um, all the other adverse um, effects that we see in the field for the past 40, 50 years, socially just practices is the only way to do it. And it's um, for it to be long, long lasting. So challenging systems, challenging how we think about students, challenging mm-hmm. how we um, how we go about assessment, how we go about counseling and intervention prevention. All of that is really the framework that social justice provides for our work. Yeah, I, I would agree with Charles. I think that um, often we do think about systems in school psychology, but I don't know that we always think about them in ways of framing it in social justice. And I think Mm -hmm. the work of social justice um, is hard work because often you're challenging bias in systems, you're challenging discrimination, you're looking for kids who have experienced marginalization based on one or more of their identities. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really need to start thinking about how do we deconstruct those systems so that outcomes for all kids are equitable which is what Charles is talking about, is that mm-hmm. end result. And, and social justice is, to me, that process of getting to that end result Absolutely. of equity. It, it's not necessarily equity, although it is part of social justice. But mm-hmm. it's, what, is, what are those actions that we're taking and those processes that we are um, disrupting to make sure that, that we have equity as our outcome? Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Exactly, yeah. I, I love that um, idea of disrupting processes, especially when we're talking about systems change. And I'm wondering how you think about school as an institution, as a system that has a lot of um, racism built into its system, but also as a you know as a smaller sort of system above you know the current climate in the country and and the political systems and um, all of that. And I, I just wonder about um, school psychologists being able to d- disrupt in big and small ways um, in schools, because mm-hmm. as, as you're saying, uh, to achieve, to even move towards social justice, it seems, um, it seems like we, we have so far to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you have thoughts on, on, on that and where, where to begin. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll share a couple of thoughts and certainly want to hear, um, I know Sherry hasn't practiced in a while. Um, <laughs> I, I will always practice. Um, so I, I would say that it starts with certainly awareness, but I want to talk about awareness in, in a different way. Not only your own um, internal awareness of who you are as an individual, but awareness of who your students are, who your children are that you're serving. And if we don't understand their realities, um, their current realities, you know, historical realities, be it political, socioeconomic, cultural, um, then I don't think we can effectively disrupt systems that are affecting them. Um, depending on who your students are, what you're disrupting and interrupting is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about know what's going on now, the kind of the current climate in the nation. Um, If we don't have sensitivity to black students and other students of color, um, I don't think we can effectively serve them and meet their needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Children certainly don't exist in a vacuum and they come to school and they forget about what they're seeing on the news, on social media, what's happening in their their communities. Um, I've recently um, come across some research from a pediatrician. Um, I forgot her name, of course, Rhea. It's a pediatrician at, at Stanford. I posted on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram a couple days ago, but she looks at um, racism, police violence, and equity in kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about how 
just the concern about racial profiling, seeing police violence, or even knowing family members who've been exposed to police violence, how that affects children's functioning. So I think how we disrupt, how we interrupt is certainly starting with, do I know my students and do I know what they're dealing with beyond the school doors um, and how those um, circumstances affect their academic functioning, social, emotional well-being, so we're not um, unintentionally um, attributing internal dysfunction to them, but mm -hmm. more, again, systemic factors that need to be addressed and, and remedied. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I definitely agree with what Charles was saying in terms of knowing your students. I think as a, a graduate educator, I um, always try to back up a little bit and work with my students to try to make sure that they understand themselves in terms of their own biases, mm -hmm. in terms of their own prejudices. Um, and I think in school psychology programs, it's very difficult to do that because quite honestly, we are training um, as much as we're, I think, working towards trying to diversify our field. We're training predominantly white middle-class women. And I think that um, those types of conversations, and, and I mean, research definitely supports this race-based conversations where we're having real serious, authentic conversations about race. They're difficult for white people. And so, um, you know, it's always to me an uphill battle to get my students, particularly my white students, to really understand Yes, you have biases. I have biases. We all have biases. We all have prejudice. We're all, you know, like uh, uh, people really hate to hear this, but, you know, we're kind of raised in a system that where white people are inherently racist. Um, and it's not a thing that we should shy away from. It's, it's the system of white supremacy that we actually have um, that's pervasive in, in this America. And so I think until in school psychology, we can have those types of conversations with the graduate students we're training, um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing some surface level things and talking about how do we disrupt um, systems? Because if, if you don't see anything wrong with the system or, or you feel threatened by people having equal opportunity, um, you're not gonna challenge the system, regardless of how much we care as school mm -hmm. psychologists. And I, and I believe that people get into school psychology because we do care. But I also believe that there's some really deep-seated um, uh, issues that, that as Americans, we have to reckon with. And, and in mm -hmm. school psychology, we have, to, we have to do it. I totally agree, and I think you know, listening to Ibram X. Kendi um, recently talking about just the idea that racism, or racist, um, isn't necessarily pejorative, it, mm -hmm. it's descriptive. And when right. we can look at it from that lens, we can say, okay, it's not that I am being evil, it's that I have to recognize what I'm doing behaviorally that's supporting a system mm -hmm. that is um, inherently against other people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I honestly think a lot of our students and a lot of school psychologists aren't aware enough to, to even realize. Uh, and I think that's where people become defensive and feel offended um, because it, 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 it does seem personal. Um, but again, when we're talking about just being raised in these systems that kind of privilege whiteness and um, it's not personal in many ways, it's systemic. Um, and so I think getting getting our students and getting school psychologists to understand how your positionality within a system of uh, that is white supremacist gives you advantages and other people may not have those same advantages because they're not similarly situated racially within that system um, may help us have some of these conversations, but they're tough, difficult conversations. But there, mm -hmm. this is, we have to as a field, um, begin to have these conversations. It's, 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 we see what's going on in this country and there are, there are people in pain, black people in pain, um, you know, people who are our allies are in pain. And I, I just think that this is the moment in school psychology for us to, to really dive into these types of discussions and to just really start doing the work that we mm -hmm. haven't been doing. Um, honestly, we haven't been doing it as a field. 
I, I also am thinking too that if people maybe aren't to the point where they're comfortable having discussions, because like you said, it is difficult. Um, that there's, I've been seeing luckily a lot of my friends on social media um, sharing lots of articles, lots of resources mm -hmm. and books, and now my library is opening up. So I'm, you know, like, okay, I'm going to put these all on my list and then get a hold of those mm -hmm. books. And you know, work to, to educate myself and get myself um, to a better place of, of understanding. Um, mm -hmm. So I would just, yeah, if, if somebody's out there watching and feels like, you know, that's really hard, right, for whatever situation you're in right now, um, that, I mean, maybe opening a book and, and reaching out and thinking about this and then going forward to have these conversations. Um, mm -hmm. I just, just want to offer something to that, Rachel, um, maybe a, a different perspective, because I think that a lot of our work as um, school psychologists or educators, we do approach this from um, an academic perspective. So if I read mm -hmm. more about it, if I you know get more data, you know, so having facilitated trainings in my own school system, you kind of lay out this progression of, you know, learning objectives and um, and I think that's part of it. I think that's certainly important that sometimes people just simply don't know um, what privilege is and haven't thought about it because they didn't have to. Um, but the more I've been engaging in some of this work and thinking about where we are as a field, I also wonder if what we're seeing as far as a lack of willingness to e even consider socially just practices or why inequities persist, I don't think it's a cognitive difficulty in the sense that people don't understand that poor outcomes happen to certain kids or negative outcomes happen to certain students and families more than others. I do wonder if there needs to be, and of course it is the work of the individual, but there has to be a fundamental shift in almost like the fabric of who I am as a person. Um, more like a, a heart change to be really open to, yeah, I was raised this way for maybe 25, 30, 35 years, but how can I change almost the posture of my heart to really think about um, this is just not right for certain people? Um, so I, I certainly agree with, you know, education and really informing people through books and other studies, um, but I've seen that for a long time and people are intelligent, you know, people can think through and reason. And I think this resistance to it is beyond, I don't understand. It's almost like a, um, again, a heart shift that has not really happened that only the person can do, you know, for themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. Which makes it, again, a challenge is that we can, you know, facilitate discussions and provide resources, but the real work is that daily, it's almost like going to, um, therapy or counseling, the easy part is may, might be in session where you're with your psychologist and you're learning skills, strategies, is, but what do you do when that kid gets you upset, you know, on Tuesday and you left counseling on Friday, are you going to remember those strategies to put them in place and not, you know, do something inappropriate? So just, just a thought on, um, you know, how much we focus on speaking to people's um, cognition versus really challenging them to make some heart shifts uh, in themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think a lot about uh, dispositions mm -hmm. in, in terms of being a graduate educator. I'm often thinking about what dispositions do new students come in with? Do they have dispositions towards social justice? Do they feel empathy when when they see, um, you know, people who have uh, outcomes that aren't favorable, groups of people who have outcomes that aren't favorable, do have they experienced any type of uh, discrimination or marginalization that they can connect with? Um, so I, I think that's one of the things that I often think about in terms of who we're bringing into the field. Are these folks who have dispositions towards social justice? So when, when we're able to cognitively, you know, through our data, identify that, you know, so we have the data and it's there. And we know that these types of disparities exist in our country and in our schools, um, mm -hmm. whether it's police violence against black people or whether it's uh, discipline disparities where black boys and black girls are um, overrepresented in discipline um, sanctions in schools. Once we have those data and it's clear in front of us, uh, 
what do we do with that? And do we have the dispositions to say, this is wrong and, and mm -hmm. I wanna affect change in a socially just way. So mm -hmm. I think that's a huge thing for our field in the future to start thinking about the types mm -hmm. of um, dispositions students are coming into our programs with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's really important. I, I wanna talk about your research too, in particular, Dr. Proctor. Um, wondering before we segue, um, uh, perhaps giving a little voice to just how this might be impacting um, our black school psychologists in particular, some of the, the current uh, climate and, um, you know, both personally and professionally. Maybe for either either of you. <laughs> I mean, I'm personally fine with starting. Um, I think it's really hard. I think it's a hard mm -hmm. time for uh, for you know your black colleagues. I think that this is very personal. Um, we have families. You know, many of us have kids. I know Charles has a a, a son who who's a black male. I have a a young teenager who's a black male. Um, I have a black man has a husband. Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's scary. Um, you know, I, I think that many times, you know, our white colleagues or colleagues of other colors may not think about, OK, I'm getting in my car and I'm going to go to the store. You know, what is that experience like if a, if a police officer is behind me? I'm nervous, you know, because I'm thinking if I do something wrong, then will a stop just be a stop or will a stop be fatal? Um, and that's constantly on my mind. So, you know, we all have to function in terms of going from point A to point B. Um, and it's, it's a lot. And I think uh, in terms of just people needing resources and people needing support in the field and reaching out and saying, hey, can you help me with this around you know these specific issues that we're dealing with now um, is taxing, and and I and I've been imploring our colleagues who are black to kind of take care of themselves. You know, it's okay to say I don't have the emotional bandwidth right now to to deal with that, or not to respond immediately to an email and give yourself a couple of days to kind of you know, get yourself together in terms of being able to take care of yourself first. Um, I kind of think of, <laughs> I travel a lot or I used to travel a lot and I think about it, you know, airline travel and they want you to make sure that you secure your own mask before, you know, you might help a child that you have with you. And I kind of feel like we're in one of those situations right now for our black colleagues. It's like, so let's secure our own mask and then mm -hmm. try to be supportive to, to our colleagues and to other folks who, who really do need us at this moment, but it, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just echo that. You know, exhaustion is what I would say. Well, I guess last week, week before last, just, you know, just being up watching, you know, these protests and demonstrations, but just the emotional toll of thinking about it. And I was telling my wife, you know, having an 18 year old stepson um, who's, you know, black kid, you know, about to go out into the world, go to college, it, it wears on you differently. Um, than even just being a black man myself. Uh, I remember just a quick story. Um, he had prom last year and somehow you know, he has a car and somehow he forgot his keys or something. So I said, you know, just take my car. And I said it because you know, good kid, responsible. But then for a split second, I had this thought of this kid is 17 years old driving a black BMW SUV late at night. And what does that look like to some police officers so that even that slight thought i i don't think you know my white colleagues have those thoughts um just you know the the perception that that um that may suggest for some people so i think last week or the last couple of weeks has really just heightened that that um emotional exhaustion or just thinking about it while also you know being a school psychologist and attending meetings and supporting families and doing all the, you know, job duties, you know, coupled with your own just um, internal struggles with this. So it's exhaustion is is, is my word um, for a variety of reasons. Makes sense. And when we're hearing our friends and colleagues say, I'm tired, um, you know, hearing people say, I'm tired of having to justify my own existence. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Yeah. And I think we, um, you know, allies, friends, accomplices um, can, can hear that and stand and, uh, you know, 
it's our turn to to help and um, do what we need to and stand with you and listen, you know? So um, I know we were talking, I uh, wanted to talk about your research as well, Dr. Proctor. Um, your team recently completed a study related to school psychologists and their experiences serving black children exposed to police violence. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, this is a, a situation that, that has been going on in our country uh, for quite a, a long time, unfortunately. And I became interested in this topic after Trayvon Martin was uh, killed and then uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson. Um, so I'd been kind of thinking about the trauma that these uh, repeated killings of unarmed black men um, was actually happening in this country. And I really wanted to think about it in terms of our professional practice as school psychologists and what are we doing to support students who are exposed to this, particularly black students um, in their communities. So um, just a, a couple of a background just to kind of help frame the study that we did so you kind of have an understanding of the need for the study. In this country, black people are disproportionately killed by police uh, and they're three times more likely to be killed and five times more likely to be killed unarmed um, by police. So the effects of these killings are, they're really harmful to individuals in the black community in general. Um, after these types of killing research tells us that black individuals experience fear, anxiety, depression, um, hypervigilance, avoidance, and also sometimes disassociation. And what research has showed us is that it doesn't just impact uh, Black people who are immediately exposed to these uh, killings in terms of in their communities, but it also has an impact on Black people who are exposed to these uh, police killings outside of their immediate um, area. So I really became interested in what is this experience like for Black students and also what are we doing as a field to support Black students who may be either more immediately impacted, meaning something took place within their communities or are indirectly, they're seeing news stories over and over again about uh, these events. And so what research has kind of uh, told us is that there, first of all, there's not a lot of research related to um, the impact on Black students, uh, but I did find two really great studies in terms of helping us kind of understand what's going on. One was conducted after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and these researchers uh, went in and they looked at school-wide data to try to figure out um, was academic achievement impacted after Michael Brown's killing for the students in Ferguson, Missouri. And what they found was that across uh, grade levels, elementary to high school, they actually found a decrease in academic performance, particularly in math and reading um, for students, for black students, as well as increase in chronic absences. Um, but what I thought was super uh, interesting to kind of to think about is that um, the greatest impact in terms of declines in academic achievement for our students who needed the most support. So our lowest performers seem to be the students who needed the most support after this, uh, the killing of Michael Brown. And there also were spillover effects um, in majority black schools throughout the St. Louis, Missouri, uh, greater uh, area. So those researchers were Gershenson and Hayes, and they did that research study in 2018. The other study I found that I thought was particularly interesting was a study by Staggerns Hakeem in 2016. And this researcher actually um, interviewed 16 black males to try to understand what was the mental health, emotional health impact of seeing um, or hearing about police killings of unarmed black men. And so what they found was that the youth, the, the men, the boys, uh, perceived violence as being motivated by social perceptions and stereotypes of black males as threatening. And at times they felt that um, police didn't see the black men, the black males as human. Um, 
These Black boys experienced fear, concern about being racially profiled, and they felt a need to be careful about how they dressed and also behaved when they went out in public. So those, um, you know, just understanding that uh, these killings of unarmed Black men and people in this country have a traumatic uh, impact on Black kids in schools. And our field is a field that should be responsive to the needs of all children. But um, when you have something going on like this that has been persistent and consistent, uh, we should be responding to, to Black children in our schools who are indirectly or directly exposed to police violence against Black people. So hence our study. We were interested in understanding um, what exactly um, our school psychologists who serve students who lived in communities close to where these events have taken place. What are their experiences? What have their training experiences been? And then also, what are they doing out in the schools to serve these students? Um, so essentially, we wanted to know a couple of things. Um, what was their knowledge about uh, police brutality against Black people? We also wanted to know about their training experiences. So for instance, um, our programs actually engaging in discussions like we were talking about earlier, these different difficult discussions around race like police violence. Um, are they getting trained specifically to deal with the topic of police violence against Black people so that they are able to go out into schools and serve kids who may experience this? Um, and how do they train these students? And then we were interested in um, what do they think school psychology programs should be doing better to prepare them to go out to serve in their schools? So we actually interviewed um, 14 practitioners, school psychology practitioners and students who either worked in schools within 50 miles of where um, an unarmed uh, black person was killed by the police or who attended school psychology programs within 50 miles of, of that. And I'm just gonna share with you four of our kind of major findings. Um, one related to the discussions. So we were really interested to see if, if are we having these um, difficult but specific <clears throat> discussions around police violence against black people in our school psychology programs. And what we found was that most of our participants indicated that they did discuss racial topics, but they were more broad. Um, so for instance, many participants said they discussed Brown versus the Board of Education. Okay, so things like that, but not specific uh, racial topics like, like police violence against Black people. They also reported that they, every single participant reported that they did not have any specific training um, related to supporting students who are exposed to police violence um, against Black people. Um, many of them mentioned that they have had exposure to trauma-informed care, but when we asked them specifically, um, are we talking about police violence against Black people and that impact on Black kids? The answer was no specific training. Um, and then also in terms of what they thought they needed from school psychology programs, um, in terms of training, many of them thought that school psychology programs could improve their multicultural training. And several of them specifically mentioned um, that they thought we needed to improve social justice training. So those, that's kind of the gist of the findings. Um, we're currently um, working on publication to kind of get this out to the field so people can, can help uh, understand where we are with this and maybe we can impact some of the training practices in our field. That is super important, I feel. And um, I, I hope that, that you know, is used to kind of shape where our graduate programs kind of need to be to make sure. I know that um, we lament on the podcast often that there's just not enough time to cover all the things that school psychologists need to be aware of, but this is obviously something that needs to be infused in all of our coursework and not just kind of generally with um, here and there, but really um, needs to be at the forefront of what we're, what we're doing so we can do our job um, the best. Just a, just a quick comment. Um, so, I, so I think one of the lessons I've learned from um, Sherry just really kind of outlining kind of the framework for her research and how she got to that place. Um, it's also the importance of interdisciplinary studies um, mm -hmm. that school psychology is wonderful, but we don't have the literature, we don't have the 
you know, evidence base, if you will, to really address some of these things. We have not been doing it. So going into other um, professions, other disciplines, I know a lot of our work uh, with those articles that Sherry mentioned on LIEM and, um, you know, the effects on counseling or gifted ed and um, consultation didn't necessarily, didn't necessarily come from a school psychology literature. Um, so, and the, the person I was referring to was Rhea Boyd, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Rhea Boyd, pediatrician out in Stanford. Um, but it could be looking into pediatrics or um, counseling psychology, social psychology, other disciplines that do have a better handle on this than we do as school psychologists. I think it's just a point to, to highlight that I think we have to kind of get beyond our siloed approach mm -hmm. um, that it's all within, you know, within our discipline when it's not. That's a great thought. Uh, you know, I, I love that um, we were able to have Carla Shedd, uh, Dr. Carla Shedd, and her expertise um, really support uh, in our field, reading the, the National Book Talk that we did. And so we really appreciate, um, uh, Dr. Proctor, your committee, especially <laughs> Social Justice Committee, for um, bridging that gap with us, because I think that was really invaluable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think another thing, you know, just in terms of our knowledge base and how we develop knowledge in our field is mm -hmm. I think that it's important for us to think about that from a social justice perspective as well as is in terms of what type of knowledge do we value? Whose mm -hmm. knowledge do we value? Um, a lot of my work is qualitative work and our field hasn't historically or maybe some might argue currently um, as doesn't embrace that type of work as much. We're very numbers, clients focused field. Um, but a lot of the, the stories that we're going to really understand social justice issues, you, you, you're not going to necessarily get at them through numbers. Um, and that's not to discount the value of quantitative work. But a lot of the stories that we need to hear um, from our colleagues, as well as from the students and families we work with, we need to hear their voices. And, um, and I think that's really important for us in terms of thinking about how do we value knowledge and whose knowledge do we value in school psychology and expanding, expanding that so that we're more inclusive, more socially just um, at multiple levels. And I know that, um, you know, Charles, your work with the Exposure Project and, and getting more into our field and getting more um, awareness of our field. And I think that that's going to um, do good work in, in getting kind of the diversity that we need in school psychology and um, getting, getting those voices out there because yeah, I mean, school psychologists were mostly white women, and um, that's not representative. And it, we we need more diversity, and we need and we need that. And um, so I just think that that's really really important for our students and for for everybody to have that. And when we look at kind of the different, even you talked about silos across disciplines. There's even kind of silos within school psychology itself because we tackle so much. And so you have a group of researchers over here and a group over here that might be researching totally different things. And again, if we don't have those voices in the mix, um, you get this one-sided view of things. So, yeah. Can I, I just want to jump in and say um, one of the things that we did find in terms of the study that I didn't mention, um, which is related to uh, diversity and racial diversity in the field, is that Many of our participants, and most of our participants were white, which was is reflective of our field, but many of our participants, particularly our white participants, said that they, um, one of the things they thought school psychology programs could improve on would be um, racial diversity and having more people of color in programs. On the other hand, some of our black students felt a burden in terms of being the um, only folks who are speaking up around racial issues like police brutality against black people and, and um, Black Lives Matter and then those types of topics that we asked them about. So one of the things, you know, we really want to be thoughtful about, I think, in terms of building our infrastructure, you know, representation is really great. I'm a huge advocate of representation in our field. But I think we need to build um, the infrastructure to make sure our students of color, our Black students, our Latinx students of color, our Asian students, that they feel like there's a space and a place for them in our school psychology programs and that 
we all know school psychology training is difficult and um, it's a lot <laughs> as well. And so imagine the additional burden, emotional weight that students of color come into school psychology programs having to deal with being the representative of their race, constantly being the person to speak up about racial issues, everyone looking to them to kind of be the voice of, of the community that they represent. Um, and also racial microaggressions that we know from research takes place in school psychology programs from students as well as from professors. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of work to do in our field in mm -hmm. order to make sure that representation is not just representation, but it's also um, a place where we all feel valued and included. Um, it's very important for us to get mm -hmm. to that place in our field and not just bring in students of color because we wanna say, we're diverse. The next step is, what do we do with that diversity to make our profession a rich one that's responsive to all the kids that we we are going to be challenged to support when we get out into the field? Yeah, I think I'll just add to that. Um, I was writing a couple of days ago, maybe Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, um, this idea that diversity, inclusion, and equity are not synonymous. And mm -hmm. I think some of us think that. Um, you know, in the field, you know, us meaning kind of broad, even educators um, at large. So as Sherry said, diversity is just a simply difference. We have different mm -hmm. people, could be race, um, ethnicity, or other dimensions of difference. But inclusion to me is meaningful participation or meaningful engagement. So I'm invited to mm -hmm. um, contribute to this program in ways that are meaningful to me and the others. But then equity is really is about power and shared power, meaning um, who is allowed access and opportunity to really contribute to decisions, to really change mm -hmm. systems and structures. So we, we can have diversity in the absence of inclusion or equity. Um, so I think certainly I, I, I love that point that bringing diverse students or you know students from different backgrounds together without addressing <clears throat> the inclusion and equity implications, we're still doing a disservice um, to our students and programs and mm. in the field. So just wanted to highlight that um, that point there. It makes me think, makes me think back to our original, your original point that we need to start with some level of, of awareness as practitioners about our own um, privilege, really understanding what that is and our own experiences and our own identity before before we can be kind of um, guardians of wellness for other people. And uh, I think that's been so such a powerful um, part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will say, like, I, I think about um, the work that I do and, and I work at, at, you know, like in a very diverse setting. And one of the things I, I was thinking about before we got on this call is how we can't assume that people come to us with this knowledge. So I work with students of color of all different races. And many of our, my students are, are uh, came to this country as immigrants and they're brown people or black people. And I assume, okay, there's this kind of shared knowledge base that we have from experience as being black or brown in America. And as I'm instructing often, you know, my students from different places might say like, I didn't know that about, you know, this black experience in America, or I, I had no idea about segregation and the history of segregation in America. So I, I think, you know, I think what the work that we're doing is is work that we're educating mm -hmm. and not making assumptions that, that, you know, certain students come to us with certain knowledge bases, but really understanding the students that we have in front of us and making sure that all of our students are getting to the point where they can go out and uh, do equitable, socially just service delivery. Mm -hmm. um, one of one of the things that my school is doing that we've found as a little community very powerful is attending sending some people to attend the people of color conference mm -hmm. um, and people come back and we're getting started with affinity groups so I just um, for my own beginning of this journey for myself that's been um, really powerful to, to think about um, affinity groups and just ways of the, the way I identify, the way other people in my community identify. Mm -hmm. 
I know that we're nearing the end of our time, so I'm going to ask that anybody in the audience with any questions, um, if you want to pose them. Um, but really great conversation, and I've, it's you know gotten me thinking. And I think that that's important. I want to also point out we've never had so many um, live viewers before, and because of that, I think that um, that speaks to how important this is. And I think that you know the school psychologists um, are, are listening and. Um, um, you know, want to be involved and want to make a difference. It's also, I think, probably flagged um, YouTube as far as um, random people popping in or bots or something. So we've had a couple, I've actually had to block people. I've never had to do that before. So I do not, I truly do not believe that those are not school psychologists. I think that because we have such a high viewership right now, um, people are who are not school psychologists or bots are, are kind of taking notice. So that's kind of interesting. I wanted to, we had um, Dr. Vander Hayden on a couple mm -hmm. days ago and she talked about evidence-based academic practices. We were specifically talking about math. Um, and the, the discussion was had too that when we're not using evidence-based academic um, strategies and interventions that this is hurting um, you know, our marginalized students even more because of the lack of access to the resources mm -hmm. that some of our other students might have as far as tutors and lawyers and advocates and, and things like that, that they're the most um, hurt by ineffective practices. Mm -hmm. um, it also reminded me of a discussion that I had, and I love Twitter and I love um, learning from everybody on Twitter. Um, Dr. Malone, who is just amazing, um, I had asked her, there was a piece that went around about, you know, social reading as a social justice and making sure that all our students are readers and how that's mm -hmm. important. And I had asked her um, about um, that that aspect, uh, you know, because um, that's not something that I normally would think of as social justice. But the more that I'm reading and, and learning that, yes, it does seem to be. So I had asked her opinion and she in kind asked me, you know, um, we started to have a discussion about um, you know, what What do you think that the Social Justice Committee should be doing to, to help this issue? And I honestly, I haven't responded yet because I don't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still kind of pondering that and that still has stayed with me and made me kind of think a little bit um, that how do we, how do we address those academics through kind of a social justice lens and, and will that help us you know, to, to tackle that, those two kind of co-occurring problems. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think about that often. I mean, I don't, I don't know of a black person in this country you would get to say reading isn't a social justice issue. I mean, historically, we were um, not allowed to learn to read and had to fight for our right to learn to read. Um, so I, you know, in terms of arguing whether it's a social justice issue or not, to me, it's a given. It's a social justice issue. My people fought, died for the right to read. Um, However, I think one of the things we should think about in terms of that is thinking about it from a uh, systemic issue. So when I think about, um, we know a lot about what works. We have a lot of programs that are evidence-based that works. When I think about the disparities that kids are presenting with across racial groups in terms of reading, I'm thinking systemically, and that's social justice, thinking systemically. I'm thinking about what schools have access to funding to, to bring in evidence-based programs, what schools have access to funding to have additional paraprofessionals um, to be able to deliver and those programs with integrity. Um, and so I'm really thinking more systemically, um, I'm thinking about teachers in schools. I'm thinking about why um, teachers tend to work in schools longer that aren't schools in lower income communities of color. You know, we know that those teachers tend to to work less years and to move on, either leave the profession or move on to, to other communities that are more resource, better resource. So we know what works in terms of reading. I think when we think about it from a social justice lens, we need to be thinking systemically about how do we make sure that all kids get access to what we know works? Um, to me, that's the social justice issue related to reading. Thank you. We have a, a really good viewer question. Um, a viewer asks, is it wise for me as an aspiring black school psychologist to post about racial injustice and racism, especially in schools and on social media? Uh, a lot of professionals think I won't get hired. 
I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's one that ultimately is the individual's personal conviction about what, how they want to monitor their or mm -hmm. use their platform for influence. Um, I speak a lot about race and, and race issues. I think that there's a way to do it, be very clear on your position, yet not um, disrespectful or to engage in banter that eventually becomes non-productive. Oh. So I think that it, it's not so much what you're posting or that you're posting about race and racism, uh, even in schools, it's the purpose for that post. Is it to educate, is it to enlighten people? Um, but just really being mindful of, you know, everything online is, is public domain. Um, so certainly employers do look at, you know, prospective students or um, employees there, social media feeds and things like that. So that, that's a reality. I'm not saying to not do it. I'm saying to be mindful of how you engage in those discussions. Um, but ultimately, if you're comfortable with what you're sharing, what you're posting, that really is 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 what matters. But um, when I got hired, even when I was in grad school, social media wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but now I feel very comfortable because I, I'm comfortable with how I engage around race and racism and structural um, inequities. Um, it's a delicate, nuanced um, um, issue that I think, again, we have to come to for our own personal comfort levels, but um, hope that helps a little bit. We can certainly talk offline some more if that's um, what you wanna do. I saw who posted it, so you can message me, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a, there's um, so much fear of uh, retaliation or, um, yeah, kind of punishment for standing up, um, yeah. Fear, fear on many, lots of lots of sides. Also, fear of like saying the wrong thing or um, you know all of that. But it, it's great. I think that we're modeling, um, hopefully, a conversation towards facing that fear because it is what's right. It's what's needed um, to be listening and and having conversations and and trying to move our fields. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, I know we have a lot of people who said, um, please part two, can we do a part two? <laughs> um, so, you know, depending on scheduling and our guests availability and, and everything, um, I would certainly um, uh, second that, but um, <laughs> perhaps- um, <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, maybe we can compile a list and post that on uh, our Facebook pages and social media of resources, um, mm -hmm. some books to read, some articles and things that um, we can do uh, a little bit of some, you know, some homework ourselves to figure out how we can take this information and connect with, um, the, the important work that needs to be done and, and begin to um, begin our own journeys of being anti-racist and um, finding out how we can dismantle systems that we impact directly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, and I think, um, sorry, I don't mean to. No, I was just saying, so we'll, we'll share some things as we gather some resources. Awesome. Um, do you guys see any last minute questions do we want to take? I don't want to cut anybody off. I, I also want to be mindful of you guys' time. Right, so. respectful <laughs> of our to keep you an hour. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. There, there's so, so many great questions. I think one, maybe we can pin it, but just name it now. Um, a lot of people were asking about the presence of police in schools. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on how that affects um students, especially black and brown students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we have ample research to kind of support that when our students are in schools and they're, um, you know, interfacing with police in schools are, are black students um, and in many cases our brown students are experiencing police in schools in different ways than um, other students may be experiencing police in schools. and. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't know. I, I think back to when we were in school, like we didn't have police in schools. We had the assistant principal and the principal, and that was enough to kind of keep us in line. Um, I think when we have relationships with kids and kids know that we care and they feel like they're adults that they can go to to talk to about, you know, whatever it is that they're they're dealing with that as educators, we can relate and handle our kids in schools. I, I feel like, um, I feel like I don't know that I see a hundred percent need for police in schools, given some of the outcomes that specific groups of students experience in their relationships with police in schools. So, um, so that's kind of where I stand on police and schools. I prefer to see schools as safe spaces where all people and kids feel valued and connected and loved. And, um, and, and I can envision us as a country eventually getting to that place where schools are a safe haven for all mm -hmm. of our kids. And if, if that's the case, there's no need for police and schools. Mm -hmm. I would just echo that, you know, Behavior, as we know, is communication. And when when students are behaving in certain ways, what are they communi communicating to us or trying to express to us? Um, people often ask me about, you know, school psychology and how to get into the field. And my first question to them seems a bit facetious or silly, but it I mean it. I start with, do you like children? Mm -hmm. And if you don't like kids, do not become a school psychologist or a teacher or a school counselor. Mm -hmm. But I do believe going back to a systems framing of this, I think kids are in schools with people who don't like them. Mm -hmm. And then they do things that are um, less than productive, but that's communication. So again, before I get to it's the kids difficulty, I think about what's going on around them that may lead to those behaviors that, that we think may require mm -hmm you know, police presence. Dr. Shedd's book, Unequal City, um, is a book that I really enjoyed. Um, besides the content, I think she did a great job of centering the student mm -hmm. voice. It was kids speaking for themselves and how they felt in schools with more or less police presence. I think it was uh, Dr. Tamika LaSalle commented earlier about not speaking for black and brown students, but letting, giving them the mic and let them speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Dr. Shedd did that in a brilliant way and talks about a lot of these issues about kind of the carceral state of schools and police presence. So if you haven't read Un Unequal City, mm -hmm. that's, that's a good one to also add to your library. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> National <laughs> book read hashtag. <laughs> but um, certainly centering student voices around this very issue is what was very helpful to me to, to read from what the kids said. Mm -hmm. All right, um, I guess we'll close it. Um, at that, I our audience, nor nor any of us want want to leave. I know, right. <laughs> Really but, but we want to be respectful of your time. We are so appreciative and grateful. Uh, thank you so much for this discussion yes. and for your time. And um, we just so appreciate you. Mm -hmm. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. <laughs>